0: What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy360 Network. I'm excited to be bringing you this interview with the founder and board advisor for Enverness. Alan Gilmer, guys, we've had everybody from Rob McBride, we had Bernadette Johnson, we talked with Chris Deakler, so we we've had some big wigs and interests, but none as big as Alan Gilmer. He's a co-founder and started this all the way back in 1999. Him and Stuart Trulley, who's the director of oil and gas 360, have a fascinating conversation. Honestly, I don't even want to spill it all, so I'm just gonna go ahead and turn it over to Stu to kick this one off.
1: Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, We're sitting down here with uh, Alan. Uh, He is the founder of Drilling Info and also and then uh, a very uh, influential person with uh, Enverus. he's on the board as an advisor.
2: Good morning, Alan. How are you today? Hey, good morning, how are you? Thanks for having me on.
1: Hey, doing great. Um, You know, as you and I were kind of chatting beforehand uh, I just really appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate your team at uh, Inverus and uh, you've made a dramatic impact to the oil and gas I- uh, industry. So you know, data equals Enverus. Uh, you guys have done great.
2: So. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Uh, I have. There is a I do want a, little, a little story. I was when we first started it. I was walking down the street in Midland, Texas, and this guy that I had no idea who he was in a pickup truck pulls up to me, and he goes. You're Gilmer, aren't you? And I said, Yeah. And he goes, You son of a bitch. And I said, Really? What's going on? He goes, You guys sold my dad, who was, who was happily retired in Marble Falls, and I was and I'm running the business now, and you sold him a uh, an account, and he calls me every day asking me, Did I know this, that, this, so you know, who's doing this? And he goes, You made my life a living hell. <laughs> Did you fix? What's that? Did you fix it?
1: Did you get his living hell
2: fixed? No, I told him, you know, he should, uh, I would be happy to sell him a, a subscription in order to solve his living hell problem.
1: I love it. Well, when you were thinking about the dream for Drilling Info, where did your patents fall in? And how
2: did this even in, uh, uh, vision start for Drilling Info? Well, you know, uh, when we started when we started drilling info, if you were an independent oil person, you worked, uh, you know, a, a railroad commission district or a four county area or half a state or, so, you know, it was one of those kind of things where you were limited in terms of your outlook. It was because it was so complicated, you know, guys that worked the Gulf Coast didn't look at projects in the, you know, in Kansas or, or what have you. and. Uh, I got into the independent oil and gas side. You know, when I left marathon, I started a a seismic company with some friends of mine and we shot seismic surveys, 3d seismic surveys for working interest. And we, uh, we had the world's cheapest crew actually. It was a, but, uh, because I was taking working interest on all these things, I, we were operating from the Canadian border down to the Mexican border and, uh, and, Frankly, we just didn't have the information necessary. We were having to depend on the people selling us prospects to be able to go do due diligence on those mm-hmm. projects. and uh, there is a moral hazard involved in in that particular framework, right? and uh, because we had to be so flexible with regards to where we where we could shoot or where we were going to go and uh, and what deals we were going to take it it really hit home to me, so it was very fresh on my mind. Uh, as we started it and uh, and my you know my buddies uh, uh, that I started drilling info with uh, Mark Niblink and Bill Fowler particularly and then uh, Martin Payne uh, shortly thereafter were all independent oil guys all coming from different points of view. I came from kind of this geophysics geology side. Mark was an independent geologist. Bill was a landman who was an independent operator and Mark was and then Martin was a uh, a a petroleum engineer or a mechanical engineer turned drilling engineer who was an independent operator. So it was, uh, uh, you know, when you're an independent, when you're a small independent, you know, all fields start to merge into one, right? You have to know a little bit about everything. Uh, An expert for everybody. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Your patents. Uh, Tell me about a little bit about your patents as you got started so, you know, at Marathon, I was very, I was at the research lab for a while and I got exposed to multi-component seismology. And, uh, and, uh, and as I had my seismic company, my dream was that we could go out and shoot multi-component seismic surveys, an expansion from just regular 3D seismic surveys. And uh, we ended up going out and doing that in, in a, in a partnership with the University of Texas at Austin, the BEG. And Bob Hardage and Bob Grabner and Milo Backus, and uh, and the guys out there and you know really really brilliant you know folks and um, and so we were uh, we were out shooting nine you know nine component surveys you know we had we had a, a, a the uh, we had three component we had a. a, a multi-component vibrators we had multi-component phones we were out doing these for various different companies and what we realized was that the the what was presented in the literature at the time was flawed uh, that that the efforts to try to get at uh, essentially uh, fast and slow had completely obliterated the the how important it was to first separate the transverse and the radial, the, the horizontal and the vertical shear components. And, and so that was kind of how we started off with that. And then, then, and then there was a, it was a little bit of a vein that turned into something big. And, and what we found was we were, we were sending our surveys off to get processed to third parties. And they were saying, well, there's no shear waves in here. But then we, it was one of these areas where we shot a 2D line and it had beautiful shear waves in there. I was like, why are you, why do we have beautiful shear waves in a 2D line, but we're not getting them in a 3D survey? And that was the, that was the part that kind of the, the aha moment. And, uh, and on my office wall, I have a, a, a there is a barf bag from uh, Southwest Airlines. We were going out in the field and trust me, I felt like barfing because my whole, everything that I had in my, my whole life was invested in this thing. And I was, and you know and and, and people saying well there's no shear waves in here and and I was you know so I was going out there and I was writing on the barf bag cuz I didn't know whether to use it or sketched it out to to a buddy of mine out there I said this this is where I think going on with the with the wave, wave form and uh, and we we ended up uh, coming up with an equation to solve that and and uh, and going out and doing that uh, so and that 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 kind of created the company of vecta oil and gas
1: you know, Alan, that is absolutely a hoot because Southwest was created on a napkin, right? In a bar. That's, that's exactly and, right. And, and this was created on a barf bag from
2: Southwest. There, <laughs> something funny about that. I had uh, never put that together, but that's exactly right. That is
1: absolutely a hoot, Alan.
2: Um,
1: as, as we sit back and take a look at our crazy COVID uh, situation right now, uh, the oil and gas industry, you know, there's probably, what, uh, 70 companies and only maybe 10 may survive, but ESG is such as being tied to capital. Any survivors have got to have ESG. What are your thoughts of the survivability or ESG uh, in your in the market uh, in the oil and gas space right now?
2: Well, ESG is a real thing, and I and I uh, I actually kind of uh, like the, the kind of the path that Alex Epstein is is proposed, and that is take the ESG reporting uh, requirements that are being you, know, you essentially oil companies are being bullied into basically making a whole lot of attributions in their in their annual reports about how governments may overregulate them or or uh, or or the environmental movement may smother them or what have you. So it's essentially, it's a shakedown. It's, it's, it it really is not a represent, you know, no other industry really has to report these kinds of things, you know, in terms of black swan events or you're really just sitting there saying, Hey, this guy that's choking me to death. I have to go out there and say that he, he could kill me. Well, at the end of the day, uh, uh, I do believe that uh, uh, this is a great bully pulpit because rather than going out there and trying to put in words that people that hate the oil and gas industry want us to say, we should go out there and talk very clearly and concisely about the benefits that we provide the world and, and the dangers to the world should we quit deciding to provide those benefits tomorrow. And I think that it's, uh, you know, and I, and I, and I thought that, uh, you know, Alex was brilliant in terms of, uh, you know, conceiving of that concept. And I don't think the bigger companies will do that because they've kind of completely capitulated, but I do think that it's, uh, I think that the smaller public companies should do it right away.
1: You know, uh, we were, I was so fortunate to uh, interview Alex, and uh, in our interview, I really liked his attitude. Uh, We were talking about um, coal and India had just opened up, I believe it was 64 coal mines. And Alex's response was great. Get low, uh, abundant, low cost, abundant power to people to elevate them out of poverty. Like you said, I really liked Alex.
2: Uh, That was pretty cool. Yeah. He's a, he's a, He's a brilliant, brilliant young man, and uh, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. Um,
1: how do you feel? Uh, Enveris is facing up for ESG.
2: Do you feel you guys are ready for it? You know, I, I'm. The fact that it's so kind of ill defined, I, I do think that Enveris, uh, in terms of, 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 having a focus on the whole energy spectrum, uh, is is prepared. Uh, in in, in sense. The fact that the world cannot exist without oil and gas for at least another 20 or 30 years makes it very well prepared. And I think uh, the whole concept of uh, more and increasing regulation uh, surrounding uh, uh, hydrocarbons Mm -hmm. uh, are a given because that is uh, that's just the style of the world, right? You know, it's Ronald Reagan had a statement one time. He said it seemed like the, the, the model, the government model of the United States was that if it works, tax it. If it keeps working, regulate it. If it quits working, subsidize it. And you know, that's, that just seems to be human nature. Yep.
1: Uh, I'll tell you, um, did you see Michael Moore's movie that came
2: out uh, not too long ago? Uh, you know, I was watching it and then they, they right as they pulled it off. Oh, yeah, no way. How but uh, I you know, had through? some discussions with some folks and it was, uh, you know, we, we completely disagree with regards to the way that the, the world should be managed and, and structured. But it's right. a truth teller. Yes.
1: Uh, I thought it was interesting that the um, uh, whole, it brought out a whole new light of, uh, uh, solar and all of the other costs associated with it. They're not as green as they say. And was it Warren Buffett that said, uh, don't create uh, solar or uh, renewables without tax deductions. I believe it was him. Uh, he said, they're not, a, not low cost providers. So it's kind of interesting. Um,
2: do you think there, there there's a tremendous amount of intentional uh, subterfuge around the whole the whole uh, cycle costs of everything I mean it's you know you read about like you know when we talk about subsidies for oil and gas and you even you know go out and look at it look at what the IMF said and things like that these are crazy definitions of subsidies I mean frankly no one in their right mind would ever come up with that other than a phd in economics who is going to go out there and say that everything that touches this is somehow a subsidy one way or the other but it's it's nothing that any normal reasoning human being would look at and say is this and uh uh and then on the on the other side is this effort to try to whitewash the green uh, or to greenwash what we call green energy which is essentially uh, not nuclear, which might be the greenest energy, uh, but the solar and wind, which, uh, you know, the, the biggest issues that you have surrounding it is essentially the, the whole cycle. You know, do you want a golden age of strip mining? Well, you're going to get it if that's the case. And then the, the second part about it is uh, and the reason that I, uh, I, I uh, endowed a, a distinguished chair in economic geology at my old alma mater where I graduated uh, in economic geology uh, uh, at UT El Paso, was uh, green energy is so is so strategically placed with China. China mm-hmm. did not go out there and and uh, you know the the Paris Accords the whole thing was essentially make China great. Yes, expensive the rest of the world put. Put China in control of your energy, which is essentially the same thing as saying put China in charge of your labor, and uh, uh, and that, in my mind, is strategically uh, irresponsible. And uh, so, number one, the 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 kind of you know CO two in the atmosphere is by far is is one of many parts. Of environmental degradation, and yet it's conflated as being the most important one. And then the reality is, it's one of many, and maybe not as important as people think. Uh, Putting putting China in charge of the world economy is, in my mind, a a structural risk, a huge structural risk that is being completely uh, uh, ignored.
1: All of that is intertwined right now, uh, Alan, when you sit back and take a look at the COVID, the worldwide, uh, and I feel depression coming on. I may be over saying it, but um, China has been dropping in wind farms into Ethiopia, uh, all of these other uh, African smaller countries. And that's kind of like putting them on a... uh, Uh, you owe me almost mob mentality um that you are dead on right with that it's kind of scary
2: they are they are they are long-term thinkers uh they're very strategic in the way that they approach things and uh we are not
1: Uh, we think in about minutes instead of uh, (laughs) uh,
2: i i you know i i used to go to dc when i was a a member of the uh, you know the, it was a, a little group out of the department of energy it was called the petroleum technology transfer council and i was on the national board of that and uh, we would go to talk to uh, politicians about this program and what it meant and and what have you and i watched as the doe went from being having touch points through all the energy chain you know emerging g's and all these other things to becoming uh, to picking winners and losers and, you know, watch that transition and going in there and talking to, to these senators and representatives. And it was when I, because I, I, I naively went up there thinking that people were, would respond to truth, you know, to truth telling. And then what I found was that there is no such thing as an objective truth in DC. It's all about whatever, you know, whatever my constituents, you know, whatever I can spend in my constituency to get more more dollars from, or what have you. And it was very, very, uh, you know, I, 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 it was, uh, very disappointing to me. So it's all about the vote. Politics is everything there. It's, uh, you know, doing right or wrong, you know, uh, long-term or, or anything like that is, uh, uh, you know, and, and they look at, they, they, and the worst thing that ever happened to the, to the oil and gas industry was for it to be associated with a party, you know, and oh. I think, just, you know, ask Caliburton if they ever want to have another chairman CEO become uh, vice president or president of the United States. I guarantee you their answer is going to be no, because all of a sudden your brand becomes conflated in party politics and party politics means destruction. And, uh, uh, and I oh. think the whole thing is brought down there. And I think that, uh, you know, I think the, you know, green industry is very tied into party politics because they need, they need political help in order to maintain cash flows. They needed, they need those subsidies. And, you know, at least, you know, one of the, it was a democratic politician. We walked into his office one time. He said, you know, I love talking to you guys from the oil business because you're the only ones that come in here and not asking for anything other than to be left alone.
1: that's the truth. The first true thing I've heard out of a politician. <laughs> um, you know, when you were starting, and now that you're an advisor on the board, you started Drilling Info. Uh, it has now uh, been sold off to Inveris. And you take a look. Would you have ever dreamed in your wildest mind the direction of now where everything is going? And Well, I think, think-
2: I, th- I think it's important to say that the only info is in Vera. So you know, we, uh, yes. we did. We sold. Uh, we sold a majority stake to another private equity group, Genstar, out of San Francisco. Very fantastic, uh, really smart private equity group. And I have, you know, I, a lot of people don't like private equity. My experience with private equity has been fantastic. I mean, very smart people with really that have, uh, you know, that understand and can process. Business downturns and what have you, uh, but you know what ended up happening was we had so many brands underneath that we had acquired to move into these various different directions that uh, that it, there needed to be a broader name in which to in which to rally the troops around a brand. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, why did you think of this name? Well, you know we. Uh, <coughs> We went through a long process. Uh, we hired we hired experts to go out and do these. You know, we cross referenced it all. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I, I'm not sure. You know, when you build a brand like Drilling Info, which had a very positive recognition and positive name recognition, you yep. know, changing changing a name is a is a difficult deal. But at the end of the day, uh, the concept of of energy veracity and all of us oh so truth truth energy and us and i was like you know that that's just i think we all agreed when we saw that there was that was the best description of of what we could what we
1: could do Uh, that is brilliant except i i'm from texas and I can't say it. I, that is, uh, and, and various and various and various is the most mispronounced name in the industry right now.
2: I did have one guy call me out. Or he, he sent me an email. He said, he goes, he said, you know, there were 10 of us standing around the, the water cooler talking about what a boneheaded move you made getting rid of the name of drilling info and, and inviting and, 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 you know, adopting this one. And I said, uh, I said, you know, number one, I said, well, when was the last time that 10 of you guys got around the water cooler talking about drilling info? I'll
1: tell you, that little story uh, does make a difference. And I, uh, again, that does. Um, Do you think Inveris will um, expand into other markets other than uh, oil and gas and get further down the road? Because we visited with Chris Dinkler about some of your software that is phenomenal. I mean, it will save money in in OPEX uh, dramatically. I mean, millions and millions of dollars. Um, Do you think you
2: guys can take that into other markets? We are are right now very focused on energy. So not just oil and gas, but energy. We do have, you know, right now about 70% of the U.S. utilities use use a, a product line of ours to to determine when they're going to need to fill in the gaps of, of wind and solar, uh, now that we've adopted those as a baseline because they're negative value, the the bigger issues is how do they cycle up gas plants, or you know, in order to make sure that there's no rolling blackouts. There would be rolling brownouts and blackouts nearly every day if they didn't have the cap- capability of, of filling the gaps. And up until the stuff that we were doing came about, they had to fill the gas by keeping a certain base load running all the time, whether they used it or not. And uh, right. so, uh, so that is one way that we're doing these kind of things and using kind of this uh, this whole AI and big data machine learning uh, in there. And uh, there's a pretty interesting article up on the Inveris website right now. Is uh, you know you may AI and machine learning. Go out the door when you have black swan events, right? Like as we had over here, and it was—it's a great article about how we had to change our algorithms in kind of real time to take to 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 basically model what was happening with the kind of the COVID meltdown of the economies and use and usage of uh, of electricity.
1: Wow, um, you know that—that's pretty uh, cool stuff. Um, we got to sit down with Bernadette uh, Johnson. She is uh, one of your VPs, and she was phenomenal on the data, talking about every single point, power, the uh, uh, energy generation, uh, everything about the future. We sat down with her about uh, three or four months ago, and everything that she was predicting, uh, predicting in the data points, has come true. So, She's brilliant.
2: She's a brilliant, brilliant analyst, and you know, I. I, I, people could listen to me and say, well, I'm against solar and I'm against wind. And that's, and I, there couldn't be anything farther than the, from the truth. I, I, I believe in efficient and low cost energy. I think it's, a, uh, uh, and, and where, where it's available. I just, I don't think that it's, it serves any purpose to sit there and say one is bad and the other is good when none, there is no such thing as good or bad. It's just there. And, uh, Understand what all the ramifications and all the costs are across the board. And don't make Make sure they're real.
1: Yes. Uh, In fact, that's one of the things uh, Alex Epstein was saying in our interview. And he was saying that it doesn't matter when solar, nuclear, um, coal, uh, use whatever's the lowest cost power to get people out of poverty. Uh, you, You are on the same page uh, with him
2: absolutely um, um, so we, have billion, we, we have a billion more humans on the planet to introduce yes. to energy um uh, yeah i'm a humanity kind of guy uh in fact
1: uh, greg gregory wrightstone who wrote was it uh, everything that you didn't want al gore to know um he also has a, a good look to that and that is he he says Use the best um, energy available, uh, but be a good steward of the uh, world and its resources. Um, you know, bringing the oil and gas in line uh, with ESG and doing things better, um, I think that the whole oil and gas industry uh, needs to educate folks more um, and say, we're really not bad we've done that poorly as an oil and gas industry is
2: uh, you've mentioned that already today in the mining industry and, and the fact of the matter is the first world in the united states itself you know north america runs the cleanest operations of anybody i mean in terms of mining in terms of in terms of oil and gas and i think that is a testament to the environmental sensitivity that we have in the west and it's uh and that the people that work for those companies are not uh, you know, have those same sensitivities. I mean, we employ we employ people with those sensitivities. I mean, this is a this is a cultural this is a cultural value in the West, and and it's one that we share. And uh, you know, uh, Antonio Arribas, who's the uh, the Ken Clark uh, Chair at UTEP, the the one that we brought in. He's uh, uh, he is. Uh, Media past president of the society of uh, economic geologists was uh, worked in the industry for years. He, he noted to me uh, in our last conversation, the treasure of the Sierra Madres and uh, the old prospector who was in Ma- after they had mined the mountain, everything like that, had said to those guys uh, you know, t- t- had said to Humphrey Bogart and the other guy saying, now it's time for us to go heal the mountain that has given us so many, you know, given us their treasure. And they poo-pooed him and, and killed him. And uh, he said, we're here to heal the mountain and uh, and use that as a value. And, it's, and he said, that is the value that, that, you know, frankly, every company worth their salt has adopted. And, and that's what every young person going into the industry is going to demand. And rightfully. Um, Absolutely.
1: Um, You know, I think uh, there's been several articles written, and that leads right into, I I think, one of the greatest assets that the oil and gas industry is not grooming is the millennials. Um, As more and more of us retire, uh, it's not really an attractive thing to come to work uh, in the oil and gas space. uh, or It's just kind of, how do we go reach out for new talent?
2: That's a tough one. We need, to, we need to have we need to have some balance we need to have we need to have a uh, a platform as we used to have first of all this is an industry that shouldn't be adopting the debt levels that it did you know my friend scott anderson his old man was an independent operator and it was actually he and he uh, mr anderson and scott were the ones responsible for me leaving marathon you know they were encouraged me to go out on my own and uh but he, he told me he, he had an old saying that he told his sons and he told me, he said, uh, he goes, an oil man's worst enemy is a friendly banker. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're learning that once again. Yeah.
1: Uh, this, the, the shell, uh, shale treadmill was awful. I mean, getting on that treadmill and then borrowing money to drill the next rig, um, it, it was kind of wild. In the same note, though, Alan, with all of the demand reduction, uh, with all of the financial, with the weather and uh, solar and, and all of these things facing the world, everybody's calling it a recession. What are your thoughts about re- worldwide recession or depression? What are just your general thoughts on
2: that? You know, clearly the world doesn't want to be in a depression, or at least, at least uh, the United States, North America, does not want to be in a depression. Uh, it's, uh, it's going to, it's going to be interesting because, frankly, the United States, it, you know, I, I'd say, the United States is still a very, very important part of the world. It's still, it's. First world country that's growing. Well, that's that's unusual in and of itself. And then and then you have China and India, and then you have the rest of the developing world, and those are our future. Those are the global future, because they are the ones that are that need to, and hopefully Africa will be following shortly there thereafter. That they're all on this train of development uh, for the for the for the world and, and that they can become the economic engines or take their part as being, you know, certainly China has very much proven that they are a major economic contributor to the world, to the point that China stumbles, the rest of the world stumbles. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, India needs to follow quickly. And then, and then the rest of the world needs to follow thereafter. And, uh, if they can do so, I mean, because really, frankly, what do we talk about? Depression is going to just slow down or stop so many people from being able to achieve in life that which we have come to expect mm-hmm. granted here. And I think that our, our the problem with our thinking is that we're often U.S.-centric in our thinking and uh, and that... Well, we're going to be in a depression or, or woe is me or this, that or the other. And we forget about the fact that there is a lot of people that want to be uh, achieving the kind of returns and achieving the kind of returns in life, you know, just uh, life quality that we have here. And it's pretty pretty insulting for us to go out there and tell them that, well, it's good for us, but not for you all, right?
1: Um, good way to look at, you know, the, as I've been doing international stories and, uh, the leadership in India is, should be just applauded. Uh, they are right along in what you have said, and they are opening up 40, uh, some odd coal plants. Uh, they've got investors, they've gotten now six new, uh, LNG ports. Uh, they are trying to get the lowest cost, uh, uh, kilowatt per hour to their people to elevate their people to do exactly what you just said.
2: So their leadership is prime And I would tell you, it's, it's really refreshing to watch the leadership of India go do this because India itself should be the most powerful country on the planet. If you think about it, it's the, there is, a, there is education is really valuable over there. There is yep. many smart people. There and you know the, the one thing that India has that that China and the United States uh, do not is nobody's terrified of India they've never been they have never been a colonialist power right. but, you know they they understand what it was like to be colonized they understand what it was you know like to to do those kind of things and and, and I think that uh, they they can take a kind of a, a moral High ground with regards to how they take their seat as a world power, uh,
1: Alan. I truly love their culture, uh, their people. In fact, my place here in uh, uh, Dallas, Texas, uh, I'm I'm the minority, and most of my neighbors are uh, Indian and. I I absolutely love it. Uh, we all just run out there, and anytime there's an Indian wedding or anything like that, I mean, they're all dressed up. My wife and I run out to talk to them. So, I love the culture. Absolutely love it. So, hey, uh, Alan, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I want to ask you one thing. You have, you have a, your wife has a foundation. Uh, can we visit about that for just a second? Sure. Um, tell us about her. Tell us about your wife and her foundation.
2: Well, my wife, uh, you know, her name is Ricky Rushing, and she's just a, a wonderful human being. <laughs> but uh, you know, the things that we become very uh, passionate about, we've always, uh, we've always been philanthropic. I mean, in in, in terms of just, you know, as, as we were broke for a long time, and uh, and as we made money, we 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 gave money out and whether it was uh through tax recognized philanthropy or whether it was uh just trying to help help people out i came from a i came from a town that was uh that had that wasn't very well to do and uh uh, you know and i've had a lot of a lot of friends up and down the socioeconomic ladder my whole life and uh and you know uh you know little bits here and there to try to to try to uh uh let people achieve their dreams is uh is an important important thing i think uh education especially stem education you know i'm that i am not sure that a sociology, you know i'm not sure that a lot of liberal arts anymore are worth worth a bucket of spit but uh i do think that stem educations are really really are and uh and I really we really focused on uh, on uh, both at the college level, as we were talking about UTEP, which does eighty nine percent of their students are first generation students. They are placed in elite graduate programs and elite and elite jobs at several sigma above what any of the other open open admission universities are. So there's something special going on there. Yeah, and that to me is is dollars any dollars that we put into that are leveraged hugely because they have an impact. They have an impact that are it's multi-generational. It's not just that person. It's going to be their kids and their kids because if you have all of a sudden established a, uh, a higher education habit in your family, it typically goes down and, and has multi-generation movement. And the other thing is in high school. So we, uh, Uh, We got involved with helping some charter, you know, uh, helping a particular charter school through a a woman, Jasmine Wong, uh, who uh, was from Brooklyn, grew up in Brooklyn, was identified as as gifted and got a scholarship to Andover and then Yale and said, you know, what would have been better is had she had available in her neighborhood those educational opportunities as opposed to having to leave to go, to go get those. And uh, so she's very passionate and I met her, she was running uh, the GeoForce program at the University of Texas, Jackson School of Geology, where they were taking students out, uh, you know, you know, grade school and high school students and taking them on field trips and, uh, you know, introducing them to geology and what have you. So she's, you know, she's living a life of what I call, consider a life of meaning, right? That's her, her purpose. And uh, so we've gotten involved in that. And, uh, and then uh, a a fellow in Austin who is a really impressive young man who is uh, he's got, he created a group called code to college, which is in Austin and is uh, uh, doing this uh, uh, more broadly moving it into the Philly area, but they're teaching uh, they're teaching kids that are, uh, 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 you know, historically kind of, underrepresented the stems to, to, teach, to teaching them how to code and how to go out there and get internships with companies to go be exposed to these kind of things. And it's really, it's really been an effective experiment. And, you know, to me, the important part is it doesn't have to just sound good. You know, there's plenty of feel good stuff that doesn't work. I really am focused on people that are actually, you know, setting up very strong KPIs that you can measure and that are, uh, that are very effectively going out and doing that. Because to me, the most important, most important metric that we have in society, the, the American dream, the America that we grew up in, the dream was that you can come from anywhere and you can achieve anything. and So I don't really give a damn about the top 1%. I don't really give a damn because they change all the time. What's important to me is income mobility that you can achieve, you can be born to the lowest decile, and you can achieve the highest deciles.
1: That is outstandingly cool. Uh, You know, I'm going to give you the golf clap on that. Um, How do people get involved with the uh,
2: foundation uh, in order to do that, just uh, through your website? You know, we don't really even have a website. It's just, uh, you know, but I, you follow me on on, on, on a LinkedIn or any of those other things. We'd be happy to talk about the ones that we are investing in, and why and okay. uh and, and I saw my post on it yesterday invite them to find their you know uh, other ones that that they might you know contribute to everybody knowing about, you know that we can all kind of share best practices
1: um you bet I follow you on uh LinkedIn, in fact, I commented on one of your uh, posts last night. you said, "What are your thoughts? I gave you mine. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Alan, um, giving a shout out again to the Inveris uh, folks and you, thank you very much for your support of Intercom uh, over the years. And uh, we just love our relationship with everybody over there. So again, thank you for your
2: time and your leadership in the industry. So uh, hopefully we can have you back sometime. Love to do that. And I have to say that Intercom has been so valuable and, and it's been a place where both private and public companies, you know, especially the privates that are, you know, to be able to go tell their story, and uh, and uh, you know, and I'm, I really, you know, one of the things we're working on very hard right now is to kind of create a set of metrics that is that is not that that is the right way to judge success in the oil and gas industry, you know. Oh. For, private go there's plenty of private people that make a lot of money in oil and gas and uh and unfortunately that's not been the case on the private on the public side and uh i think that it's uh uh you know I, i'm invested right now you know i'm I'm participating in a project right now just with a with 20 other independent oil and gas small independent oil and gas guys and uh, i was just running the economics on two of the projects prospects we're going to be drilling here shortly and uh At today's prices, you know, there's a, you know, unrisked, you know, four to one on the average reserve potential and the other one is 20 to one. So these are, these are fun. You know, this is, this is an industry that's not going away anytime soon. And uh, there are real results to be had and real reserves to be had. And believe it or not, even in the unconventionals, there's, you know, that this is a business that needs to have its business practices cleaned up, but the reserves and the value of those reserves are not questionable.
1: Um, you know, Alan, I think you would be in a wonderful addition to our capital accelerator uh, at our uh, oil and gas 360 uh, uh, virtual uh, conference coming up. So I'll have to reach back out for you on that. Uh, I What's think your insights would be beautiful, so. Um, again, thank you for your time, Alan. This has been so much fun for me. I do appreciate you. Well,
0: I sure enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Uh, You bet. I mean, quite possibly that was the, the greatest interview we've had here on the Energy 360 podcast. We really appreciate Alan for taking his time to come on here. Guys, I recommend just subscribing to this podcast if you want to hear all our other interviews that are just as good as this one. You can subscribe to Energy 360 by Enercom. You can find it anywhere you get your podcast: Apple Podcasts, um, Spotify, SoundCloud. Please, guys, check us out on YouTube. Um, you can also check out some of the other interviews we've just dropped. and we've, Like I mentioned, we have other ones with Bernadette Johnson and Enver's. Chris Dinkler, we talk some uh, business automation. I mean, fascinating stuff, guys. Um, you can also subscribe to the 360 digital closing bell, which is the best place to stay updated when all your energy market news. We go live on YouTube every single day at 2 o'clock. Until next time, guys, thank you.